Well, hello again. I hope that you had a wonderful Christmas, that you were able to celebrate in some way that was special and meaningful to you, even if it's likely that it had to look different than Christmas's past. And I'm coming to you now the weekend after Christmas, and it really does feel like this moment of hope and joy is over. It's in the past. It's done. The presents are all opened. The Christmas tree might still be up. Uh, people are leaving up longer and longer these days, but you know that even if it's still up, it's not long before it has to go in a box in the garage until next December. But here's my thought for you today. When the Christmas stuff gets packed up, do the Christmas promises go away too? Are these promises something that we look forward to all December and then in this great moment of light and joy and hope we get to celebrate and experience the joy of Christmas? And then when it's done, we have to put those Christmas promises away too until next December. Well, I'll say this. There is one Christmas promise that I hope you will take with you into the new year, even as you have to store away all the decorations and the Christmas tree. And as I talk about that promise today, I just want to share with you something from my own life. Now, for me, I've always felt like my life was a TV show or a movie. Uh, one example was I used to grow up watching uh, the A-Team, if you remember that TV show, or MacGyver. Shows that had lots of explosions, and there were always countdown timers, and then the main characters were trying so hard to, to accomplish or defuse the bomb or get out of the room. Uh, and we had this amazing little uh, kitchen timer magnet uh, that you could set for a time and it would go off with a beep, 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 beep. And the, and the digital reader looked exactly like the countdown timers on bombs and TV shows that I was watching. And I used to love just setting that timer for like 10 seconds and then making this mad dash out of the room and diving behind the couch right as it would count down to zero and the beeper would go off. Uh, and I loved just feeling like I was living out these great adventurous moments from the TV shows I liked. And it got even worse as I got older. You know, as I got into high school, I, I really felt like I was living uh, some sort of movie. And I was always picturing uh, my life as if someone was filming it and this great moment was going to happen. Uh, and I'd, I'd be on the soccer team and I'd be thinking, this is, this is the moment where I'd make the really big play that would cement me as a hero and everyone will cheer. And, and, and I, I would narrate my soccer games as I was playing them. I wasn't just playing them uh, for the thrill of the moment. I was playing them uh, as if I was uh, you know, in the climactic moment of a great sports movie. Or I'd think like, this is the moment where, where the, the girl is going to walk into the room at, at the school dance and and our eyes are going to meet and it's going to be this romantic thing just like in the movies or maybe this is the moment where I'm going to be in the high school musical and I'm going to I'm going to shine on stage everyone's going to see me and it's going to be just like in the movies I, I I saw my whole life through this filter as if I was living a movie that someone somewhere was watching and that dictated how I saw the moments of my life because all of the moments of my life were ultimately just plot points in in some great noble, heroic story of my life. And then I went to college, <laughs> and I took a, a college psychology course where I was introduced to a concept called adolescent egocentrism. Adolescent egocentrism. And that concept rocked my whole worldview, my whole sense of myself. Because basically what that teaches in a nutshell, adolescent egocentrism is saying that when you're a child up through when you're an adolescent, you just assume that everything in the world revolves around you. 
And not in a selfish or an entitled, spoiled kind of a way, just simply in the way that you think everyone in the world is paying attention to you and your story. You think, as a child and as a young uh, adolescent, you think that people are looking at you and they're waiting for you to be this protagonist in some epic tale. And the point of this course uh, is that, that that manifests in a couple of different ways for adolescents, and I'll talk about that in a second. But the, the other point was that this is something we all have to grow out of. That this is a wrong way to view the world. Now, let me unpack a little bit more what, it, what it's saying. So, adolescent egocentrism has two premises. It says that, that young people, children and adolescents, they have two um, subconscious beliefs that inform everything they do. And the first belief is something called the imaginary audience, which means that the adolescent's preoccupation with, their, with themselves, with their own actions, they assume that everyone around them is an audience in their story. They assume that everyone else around them is paying attention to how they do on that test. Everyone around them is looking to see what happens when they walk to the water fountain. Uh, and if I trip, everyone around me is going to make fun of me or point and laugh. Or if I do a great job answering a teacher's question, everyone's going to admire me. But that, but that everything I do is through this filter of an imaginary audience, that the people around me are, are truly invested in everything I'm saying and doing. And then the second feature of adolescent egocentrism is something called the personal fable. The idea there is that just like in, in a fable or, um, or an epic myth or, or a fairy tale, there's this main character who's destined for something great. Maybe it's the woodcutter's poor son who ends up marrying the princess. Uh, maybe it's the scullery maid who's going to, to turn into a, a princess somehow through some sort of uh, you know, moment in the plot. But just like in those fables and fairy tales where this, this one main character ends up being special compared to everyone around them. You know, everyone else, they get eaten by the wolves. Uh, everyone else, they fall, they fall prey to the trickster uh, or the witch in the woods. The main character of the fable, they, they overcome. They succeed. They're, there's something special and different about them. And those are the two things that, that together combine into this adolescent egocentrism. And the point of this course, and this was a Christian psychology course. I went to a Christian college. The point was we all have to outgrow that for our spiritual health. That we can't stay in adolescent egocentrism. That we have to get to a point where we recognize the world doesn't revolve around us. People around us aren't paying attention to us the way they pay attention to a character in a movie. And we, at the end of the day, are not any more special or destined for greatness than anyone else. That's reality. That's the reality that you're supposed to accept in order to become a mature adult. And then... Once you accept that reality, once you admit that you're not any more special than anyone else, that nobody wants to watch the movie of you, now you can go on and hunker down and live an ordinary life like the rest of the world. An ordinary life where, I don't know, where there are no guarantees of a happy ending, where everybody is striving just the same, and where the only things that really matter are your ability to carve out some success or wealth or protection here in this life on earth. And in that reality, plagues are going to come, famines will hit, people are going to try to harm you, and at the end of the day, success is, are you able to carve out some stability for yourself, or your family, or your organization? And if so, then you've done everything you could, because you're not ultimately in some epic movie. In fact, this is the reality that a king named Ahaz was trying to live in about 3,000 years years ago. Now, Ahaz was the king of God's nation, Judah, but he himself 
wasn't a particularly godly guy. See, Ahaz was trying to hold together this tiny little kingdom in the face of extreme geopolitical turmoil. He was surrounded by empires that wanted nothing more than to take his crown and add it to their trophy shelf. They wanted to conquer him and wipe him and his people off the face of the map. And King Ahaz, he was your classic pragmatist. He didn't have principles or convictions. He didn't have a religious faith that he, that he relied on uh, to get him through the day. What he knew was that he could count on, on his shrewd understanding of politics, the power of alliances. And so as he was facing the near certainty of war and then the famine and the plagues that came along with that, he was struggling to decide which alliances he should make, which of the the various warring empires around him uh, he should submit himself to and, and make a treaty with them so that they could protect him and his kingdom in this brutal, ordinary, regular world. And it was in that exact moment that God sent his prophet Isaiah to lay down some truth for Ahaz. And I just want to read one line of the prophecy that Isaiah spoke in that moment. This is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And Isaiah said, All right then, to Ahaz, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, we could spend hours exploring and explaining this one verse alone. But don't worry, we won't. Just, just about 15, 20 more minutes. Uh, but because I, I don't want to spend hours on this verse, it means I'm going to have to intentionally skip explaining some things about this chock full verse. We're not going to go into the historical and the geopolitical context uh, in which Isaiah was speaking to Ahaz, although that's got some fascinating stuff about an aqueduct. You should read Isaiah 7 if you want to know more. And we also are not going to get into today the, uh, the miracle of virgins having babies, which is too bad because there is a couple of millennia worth of controversy around that particular topic alone. No, today I want to focus on one word and one word only uh, in this verse that we just read. Uh, and that word is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, a couple questions probably come up for you as you think about that word. And the first one, as I field tested this message with someone this week, is why do we spell it different ways? Why is in this scripture, it's, it's spelled with an I, but when we sing that great song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's spelled with an E. What's going on there? And the good news is that's a really short and quick answer. Emmanuel with an I comes from the Hebrew spelling of the word. Emmanuel with an E comes from the Greek uh, transliteration of the same word. And so that's it. It's just different spellings of different uh, languages, just like even though we speak English and the people over in Great Britain speak English too, they spell things a little differently. You know, their word color, they put a U in there for some reason. It doesn't change the pronunciation. It does make it feel a little more posh when you talk about color with a U. But that's all it is. It's just a little spelling difference, uh, transliteration uh, of, of the same word. But now the second question and the one that is more important for what we're doing today is what exactly does this mean? And the great thing is, is that Isaiah was so helpful that he explained it right there in the verse, what it means. He says, you're going to name this child Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is with us. So what exactly is this prophecy trying to tell us about that? How, how exactly is God with us? If he lives up in the sky in heaven somewhere, if we can't see him, what exactly does it mean that God has prophesied through Isaiah that he is going to be with us. 
Well, first of all, like most biblical prophecies, this particular prophecy has several distinct fulfillments that I want to talk to you about today. Because every prophecy generally in the Bible uh, has progressively deeper levels of being fulfilled. There's like an immediate in that moment of the time fulfillment. And then, and then a few you know, generations later, there's another fulfillment. And it's all leading up towards this big, grand, ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. And so this one word, Emmanuel, God is with us, is a prophecy that is fulfilled in different and very distinct ways. I want to briefly go through all of them. The first way that that prophecy is fulfilled, Emmanuel, God is with us, is that Isaiah, uh, that there was a young woman at the time, because uh, that word Alma in the Hebrew, you're learning all sorts of uh, Hebrew language things today. The word there that's young maid or virgin is Alma. I mean, it's the same word for both concepts. And so the very first thing is that there was a young maid, just a young woman, not married yet, who was going to have a child and name him Emmanuel. And before he got old enough to, to know the difference between right or wrong, which is kind of a colloquial way of saying before he turned 12, so there's going to be a young woman. She's going to get married. She's going to have a baby before that baby is 12. So we're talking, you know, in, in a decade or so, God's going to show up in a powerful way, Ahaz, and he's going to protect Judah from the warring kingdoms around. And the fact is, that came true. Uh, we presume that the young maid was Isaiah's daughter, actually, is, is who we, we think it must have, have represented in that moment. And sure enough, within about a decade, uh, the Assyrian um, power, the empire that, that, um, that Ahaz was so worried about, they were wiped out. They were conquered. They were gone. And all of the political treaty, treaties and all of the, the maneuvering, it all came to nothing. God's kingdom was spared, not because Ahaz made politically shrewd treaties. God's kingdom was spared because God promised to be with them. And he was. And there was a child in that time that was evidence of God's promise. But that wasn't the end of the prophecy. This is how biblical prophecy is so beautiful. See, that, that moment happened, and they were able to cling to that. God's people were able to cling to that and say, see, God was with us. We were protected from the Assyrians, and they were. But about 700 years later, that prophecy came true again. And this time it was miraculous in a very obvious way, not just in God you know, prevailing over empires, but in this moment of a virgin who had not been married, who still was not married, giving birth to a baby in a miraculous way and laying him in a manger. You see, this is a promise from God that is fulfilled on Christmas morning 2,000 years ago. And so now God himself, this spirit, this entity that had created the cosmos, he came down and he dwelled with us in the form of a human being. And for 30-something years, he wandered the earth with us. And he, he cried with us. He sweated with us. He ate with us. He slept on the dirt with his friends as they traveled around the countryside. He literally, physically lived and dwelled among us. God was with us in the form of one man for 30-something years. And in his life, what Jesus did was he showed that God's power of being with us was not just a, an empty gesture, but he used that time walking with us to know our hurts, to know our sorrows, to heap all of our burdens on himself and take them ultimately to a cross. And in that moment on the cross, believe it or not, was the third fulfillment of God's Christmas promise. 
You see, we, we see it all the time on the Christmas cards. We see the baby in a manger and we make the connection fairly naturally. Oh, there it is. There's God with us as a baby. He dwelled with us in a new way. He was with us in this very concrete, specific way. But what we don't realize, we don't always connect to these dots is God wanted to be with us even more intimately than that. You see, when Christ was on the cross, when he died, he said these very specific words. He commended his spirit to God, and then he released his spirit to all of us. And so this presence, this dwelling of God, this way of God being with us in a very limited way, there was one man. And if you wanted God to be with you, you had to be near that one man. If you didn't live in Palestine, in Rome, uh, in, in 2,000 years ago, you couldn't experience that dwelling of God. You had to be there physically and chronologically to get it. But what happened on the cross when Jesus released his spirit was he came to dwell in all of us. And this is the third, even deeper fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. That when he said God would come to dwell, that God is now with us, he didn't only mean in the form of one man in a historical context. He means right here, right now, today, God is with you, God is with me. Paul, one of the early believers, he described it this way in his letters, in his letter to the Ephesians. He, he wrote this, Paul said, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in that love of God, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You are filled with all the fullness of God. God is dwelling now, not just in the form of a fellow human being who can walk next to you, who can eat next to you, who can cry next to you. God is now dwelling in the form of his spirit in your heart and mine. Which means he's not just next to us, he's in us, he's, he's in it with us. And everywhere we go in life, we have this promise of God fulfilled a promise that doesn't just end on Christmas morning in a baby in a manger. A promise that continues into the present and into all of our future with this fulfillment of prophecy. See, Christmas was not the end of the story for God and his people. In fact, Christmas was the beginning of a new way for God to be with his people. God dwelt with us as a fellow human being for 30 plus years. And now God dwells with us in our hearts as a Holy Spirit who empowers and witnesses us. And here's why this matters. It means that the lesson I learned in psychology class about adolescent egocentrism was wrong. Because it means that I am in a movie that someone else wants to watch. God. And so are you. See, here's, here's the, the, the point that, that this adolescent egocentrism that, that psychologists in worldly terms look at and they say, this is wrong, this is false. No one cares about your life. No one wants to watch you win. And you're not in some fairy tale. You're not in some epic movie or story where you're the main character who's going to prevail and have glorious riches at the end of it. They're right as far as earthly truth goes. But the fact is you and I do have, not an imaginary audience, a divine audience. And we are the center of a fable, a fable 
That's God saying he was willing to die to rescue us. See, this to me is the true fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. See, a lot of people think that the difference is something about morality. They think that the difference is that, is that Christians are more moral than non-Christians. But I'll tell you, I know a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus. And yet they are still kind and they are generous and they volunteer their time to help others. And I also know some Christians that, uh, that I wouldn't trust very far either. I, I see it go both ways. Or I'll tell you this, some people think that the difference is that Christians' lives are easier or more successful or have fewer bad things happen to them than non-Christians. But God never promised to make our lives perfect or to spare us from pain. The fact is, you look around, there are billionaires who are brutal and immoral and faithless people. And there are also wonderful, generous, faithful believers who live in poverty and distress. You see, to me, the the true promise of Christianity, this Christmas promise that, that rings true for us now, is that you and I know deep within our guts that we are never alone because God is with us. Other people, they don't know that. They're, they're making the best they can out of a life where they hope that they can find some witnesses. They hope that they can find friends or a spouse or a company, someone to witness them, to be with the hard things, you know, be in the hard things with them. We don't have to worry or wonder or strive for that. You and I have that built in through this Christmas promise of God. That God, in fact, looks at us. He says, I love this story. I care so much about what you do. And he's up in heaven chewing popcorn, knowing that his spirit is in our hearts dwelling with us, that he is partnering with us to live lives of epic difference, that we are going to make a change, that we are going to get to the end of our story. And it's not just trying to carve out success or protection or stability. It's a story of impact, a story of meaning, a story that has the ultimate happy ending, which is that, and here's the fourth fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which is that after all this work God has done to dwell with us, both historically in the time of Judah 3,000 years ago, uh, in the Christmas manger when he became a human being to dwell with us, at the crucifixion when when he breathed his spirit into the world to dwell in our hearts, after all of this and after we come to the end of our own personal fable, the end of our story, God invites us to dwell with him on his holy mountain in a place that he has prepared for us where there is no sadness, no grief, no tears, a place where we will dwell together, God with us and us with all who have received the good inheritance of God. And this can inform for you and for me a Christmas promise that hopefully would change our entire outlook on life. Because for me, when things get bleak, when I'm struggling when you have to take the lights down off the tree and you go back to the ordinary to remember that even that moment is a moment in your movie, that God is witnessing, God is watching, God is with you in your heart through it, and that every step we take is a step of meaning and purpose because it's one step closer to the happy ending that God brought to us on that Christmas morning and on every day ever since. Amen. Would you pray with me as we close out today? Lord God, I give you thanks for this Christmas story that has been called with reason the greatest story ever told. 
And Lord, I'm so grateful that that story didn't end on a Christmas card with that one snapshot of a picturesque moment with shepherds and a baby in a manger, but that that Christmas story continues on here and now today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would dwell mightily and viscerally in our hearts, that everyone watching here today would be able to feel and sense that you have not abandoned them, that they are not going through some poor narrative of a life alone, but that they are crafting an epic tale with you dwelling and walking right alongside them. So Lord, let this be true in our hearts, in our minds, in our gut, and let this be the narrative that takes us into the year 2021 as we carve out the next steps on our story with you. Amen.